I've listened to Ellington Uptown by Duke Ellington for months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me is connor i am here i'm with you it's true i like how that's kind of like become your default catchphrase it's not like a thing that you intended to happen but so many of these episodes start with you going i am here (laughs) sometimes occasionally we get a little extra i am with you but that's becoming a regular (laughs) thing and i don't know if you're aware I was not aware, and now I'm self-conscious about it. No, I listen to and I edit all the episodes, and you generally just, like, rip one off and forget about it, right? So, yeah, <laughs> you gotta do your re-listen. I hate listening to myself. Everybody does. You, you get used to it over time. No, you don't. I've tried. No, you do. I have. So we're 94 episodes into the podcast. Yeah, but you have a good voice. Thank you. You have a fine voice. Yeah. I'm excited for this episode. I think this one's going to be a little, I don't know. I hesitate to say more up your alley because every time I say that, you go, is it? And I go, yeah. And then you go, no, it's not. I hated it. And so I don't want to do that. <laughs> not every time. Well, enough times that I'm a little I'm a little cautious. Enough times that, yeah, you're worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> you would think after almost 100 albums, I'd kind of know a little better where your preferences are going to land. But no, I'm an enigma. Nobody can predict me. I guess not. Except for apparently my intros, which are getting predictable. So I'm going to have to fix that. <laughs> Stay tuned to see how Connor says hello next week. But in between then and now, we have to talk about Duke Ellington. There's a reason I picked Duke Ellington for this episode that comes out today. Yeah? Why? Yeah, this is a birthday episode. What? Happy birthday! Whose birthday? Uh Uh-huh. Duke Ellington's birthday. Oh! Yeah. I thought, what a better time. I thought that you were going to say it was my birthday episode. No. Was that last week? I think it was. This week? Did we miss my birthday? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know what? Uh, we might have <laughs> my birthday was ex- it was exactly a week before duke ellington well congratulations you didn't tell me it was my birthday episode i don't know how many ahead we are when these things come out there's a pretty clear chart online but it's my birthday happy happy belated birthday to you didn't even get anything oh my goodness no you 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 got uh you can have this this is like an honorary birthday episode for you then this is technically the first episode to come out since my birthday right yeah exactly but by that logic then we should be doing duke ellington next week so you're still not off the hook oh i'd rather be on the hook with duke ellington than on the hook with you so this is your birthday episode and i know you're a fan of instrumental music a lot more uh, a fan of the jazz okay don't okay uh uh-huh now you're like so that's why i picked it yeah How dare you? You did just get a Ray Stevens episode not too long ago. Didn't even get me any milk. That's true, I didn't. I was supposed to wash down this birthday cake I bought myself. With your tears. (laughs) Oh! Oh, no! Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm buying a birthday cake for myself right now online. Online? Yeah. Can it say happy birthday Duke Ellington on it for no reason? Oh. Well, it's a co-birthday for you and the Duke. Could have each had our own if you were a better friend. Well, I'm pretty good friends with Duke Ellington, so. (laughs) (laughs) And you, also. Next year, maybe you'll get your own. But while you're ordering a birthday cake for the two of you, let me tell you a little bit about him. Edward 
Kennedy Ellington, better known as, of course, Duke, was born on April 29th, 1899. And for a second, I thought, wow, that has to make him the very first born out of all the artists we've talked about, right? No. Do you know what? It's not. Because you... Because of George Gershwin! <laughs> That's right. You had us do Rhapsody in Blue on a singles episode. And... Best rap. Little George Gershwin was born seven months before Duke Ellington in 1898. Ha ha. Yeah. So, as this episode comes out on Friday, tomorrow would be his 124th birthday. Wow. Yeah. A lot. It sure is. And uh, why did he get that nickname Duke, you ask? It's not really derived from Edward or Kennedy. Well, as a little kid, he was so well-behaved and so well-dressed when he was a little child, people started to call him the Duke, and it just stuck. This is another episode, kind of like some of the other, you know, the Janis Joplins of the world, where it's a little out of whack. We got a little more to say about his life. and A whack episode. Yes, it is. But... Duke's parents were both musicians and pianists, to be specific. His mother played a lot of parlor songs, and his father played arias from operas. So he not only had pretty unprecedented access to music at that time. Unprecedented, you said? Unprecedented. Never mind, I thought you said something else. I don't know what that means, okay? You'll find out. Hmm, right. Well, but yeah, but he had access to a lot of music growing up, and he had access to a lot of different kinds of music, a big variety of songs that he heard in and around his house, literally for his whole life. And think about it, like the very first recording of a human voice ever made is from 1860, less than 40 years before he was born, which is pretty wild to think about. Pretty wild just to think about in general. I mean, that's not that long ago, even from us in terms of all time ever. Right? I know. 150 years we've been recording sounds. Think of all the sounds we've missed. Think about the first fart. The first fart was so far away from being recorded. I know, I'm just saying, what if we could have recorded the first fart? When do you think the first fart to be recorded happened? I'm sure some dinosaur farted. You have a little toot. No, no, like the first fart on record. Do you think it still exists? Yeah, some dinosaur tooted, sure. (laughs) I don't care about that. (laughs) You should. (laughs) And then everyone around him died, and he went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. He's like, oh no, what have I done? (laughs) Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, Duke Ellington, you threw me off with the dinosaur thing. Duke Ellington enters the world 40 years into recorded music's history. So... I mean, that's plenty of opportunities to leave an imprint on it. I'm sorry, not to dis- not to derail you again. I couldn't find an answer to your question yet, but I d- apparently a 4,000-year-old fart joke is the world's earliest known joke. Okay, so I guess that is kind of a recorded fart, just not audible recording. Yeah. What are we doing? Anybody who's a fan of Duke Ellington is going to leave because of the fart jokes. Dates back to around 1900 BC on a Sumerian tablet. What is it? Apparently... The tablet is inscribed with the phrase, something which has never occurred since time immemorial, dash, a young woman did not fart on her husband's lap. What? That's what it says. Wow, hilarious. Good job, Sumeria. Pretty funny. Really nailed that one. Classic. Right, back to Duke Ellington. Let me just steer the A train back on track here. Duke was born in- Oh! Oh my gosh. (laughs) He's a Reddit post that says, technically, the Big Bang is basically the first fart ever created the universe farted yeah yeah okay i implore you stop looking at google search results for first fart duke was born in dc but he spent most of his life and music career in new york city he started playing and composing music from a really early age he started taking piano lessons when he was just seven years old which is pretty remarkable i didn't start playing any instruments till i was like i don't know 12 13 at 14 he was sneaking into clubs to hear musicians perform And that's what really inspired him to dig deeper into music. You know, until that point, 
he kind of, I think, was going through the motions a little bit. Parents were musicians. This was just the thing that you did at that age was take piano lessons. But when he started seeing these musicians play in clubs and stuff, he saw their ragtime music, their unique styles, and what it was like to perform live. And that really hooked him and got him interested in pursuing music in a more professional sense. He wrote his very first song called Soda Fountain Rag or Poodle Dog Rag in 1914. And he wrote that music by ear because he couldn't read music yet. You know, he was just a kid. So he wrote it all by ear. And actually, when he would go out and play it, he would vary the style up as he would do it. He would use the same foundation. And as he says, he would turn it into a one-step, two-step, a waltz, tango, and foxtrot so that people thought he had a lot of different songs when really he was just playing the same song in different ways. That's smart. Really smart. Another trick that he used from watching all these musicians who couldn't afford to buy sheet music, because again, not a thing that's super available in the 19-teens, <laughs> but what they do is they would turn their music upside down and play it that way, play it backwards. Oh! For a whole different sound. There's a whole TikTok bit about that um, going around a few months ago where like there's this guy playing the piano. He's playing a song backwards uh, or he was playing a song and then all of a sudden he like stops midway through and flips the piece of paper over and starts playing it the right way. Like he was accidentally reading it upside down as like a bit. It was really impressive. Yeah, it is impressive, right? I mean, not to mention a useful trick. That's an impressive trick because, I mean, reading music normal is hard enough. Like you have to really train and learn to do it visually. But then to do it backwards, you got to retrain your brain. Thank you. Take that compliment. You're welcome. Why? You just called me impressive. Yeah, you are. Because I can read sheet music. You said reading sheet music is hard and impressive. I can read sheet music. It is. Well, I mean, look at me. I can't do it. So I'm impressed by it. Exactly. So you're saying I'm better than you. Uh, you know what? No, but that was a little birthday compliment for you. Stop. It's all meaningless. It's your birthday episode. Enjoy it. Nothing you say will stop the tears that floweth down my cheek. Poetic. Speaking of poetic, I've got another fart update for oh my, you. What, I, they can't be in the episode. <laughs> sure they can. This one's a little relevant. It's about an 800-year-old song. Oh, okay. It's an 800-year-old song that was written in the 13th century. It comes from a manuscript that was able to be preserved that contains poems, fables, and medical text and is the only written record of Summer in Ecumen Inn, which is a song that is a rota or round. It describes the coming of spring, a singing cuckoo, and various other excited farm animals. And it contains the oldest record of the word fart. What? One of the things is the goat farts amazing so the oldest the first known use of the word fart was Is in the in song. song yeah wow that's spin it the record ranking we learned so much about music what a wild thing other things that duke ellington is less known for than his music is he was also an artist he turned down a couple different art scholarships and dropped out of a commercial art school in order to pursue music as a career and while he was trying to get his music career off the ground he used freelance painting to supplement his income he would sell art that he did it was pretty cool and actually when someone would come to him and say hey i need a sign made for this party or for this occasion he would offer up his musical services if they didn't already have entertainment at the event. They'd say, hey, I'm throwing this birthday party for Connor. I need a sign for it. And he said, oh, cool, Connor, we share a birthday. How cool is that? We don't share a birthday. It's a week apart. Stop trying to put us together. And he said, would you like me to come play music at that too? And they were like, sure, we'd love to have you. So he was booking gigs that way. His first group, the Duke's Serenaders, was pretty successful. In 1923, Duke moved to New York, specifically to Harlem, which 
made him a key player in the burgeoning Harlem Renaissance. In 1926, he struck a deal with agent and publisher Irving Mills, and he was able to get recording in a really significant capacity, actually starting to do this for work. Although, he and his band often ended up with a lot of different names. They didn't really have anything locked down. Sometimes you could find records where they're billed as the Harlem Footwarmers, sometimes the Ten Blackberries, the Whoopie Makers, the Jungle Band. <laughs> it just depends on which label was publishing the record. It's very confusing in the early days of music production. But, I mean, the bottom line is they're getting work. So after he starts getting all these recording gigs, four years later, in 1927, he starts regularly playing at the Cotton Club, which is known today for hosting so many iconic artists over the course of his lifetime, including Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Bessie Smith, who we've talked about before, actually on our Janis Joplin episode, and others, uh, Adelaide Hall, Billie Holiday, and more. The club was visited by icons like your favorite, George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Judy Garland. You get the idea, the Cotton Club is a happening place. So Duke starts playing there, and they have a radio broadcast for their shows. Suddenly, Duke Ellington has an audience across the country. And he's already getting pretty high praise. Before his first stint at the Cotton Club ended in 1931, Australian composer Percy Granger would say, the three greatest composers who ever lived are Bach, Delius, and Duke Ellington. Unfortunately, Bach is dead, Delius is very ill, but we're happy to have with us today the Duke. It's pretty phenomenal to be recognized, I mean, so early in your career as one of the greatest composers to ever live. I mean, what a flattering review. What an ego-building review. <laughs> I suppose it could be, but you know what? I don't think Duke Ellington ever strikes me as a real ego guy. I don't know. I'm just saying if somebody came up to me and said I was the greatest to ever live at something, first, I wouldn't believe them. But secondly, even if I did, it'd be a pretty big ego boost. Well, I think the trick to it being a big ego boost is that you have to believe them. So you're safe. You're immune from boosted ego. Yeah, that explains a lot. <sighs> Maybe. Another thing that helped spur Duke Ellington's career in this era are jukeboxes. He was a master at creating a lot of popular swing music that's taking off with audiences at the time. He was a jazz musician at heart. He's quoted as saying, jazz is music, the swing is business. But, I mean, business was booming because he was writing these singles, making these really compelling bits, these bite-sized three-minute jukebox tracks, which, again, pretty unheard of back then. But he's making these 78 RPM single records. That's his business. Could you say he was a uh, jukebox hero? Na, 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 na. Yeah, yeah, he was. <laughs> with that one piano and the rest of the orchestra. Anyway, though, his ambition as a musician was to be just as compelling and engaging with long-form jazz songs as he was on these tiny little single records, which is what led to the creation of all kinds of jazz standards and all the covers that he did in this next phase of his musical career. And it was off to a rocky start, admittedly. People weren't loving it. He did a couple performances at Carnegie Hall that didn't exactly get rave reviews, but he created an entire musical called Jump for Joy, which got some backing from major actors, filmmakers like Mickey Rooney, Charlie Chaplin, and Orson Welles. And it was a big hit. Starts to break into the musical theater scene. But even so, the band was kind of just barely breaking even on their music at the time. Although, I mean, as a songwriter, in addition to being a musician, Duke was pulling in a lot on songwriting credits, royalties, and licenses. And Duke's making a lot of money. The band is kind of struggling. And then World War II happens. Things get a bit rocky for a while. People start turning away from the big band music. And of course, the cost of hiring big bands to play in clubs 
So the meta starts to shift. They start moving towards smaller groups and sometimes even solo artists, crooners like Frank Sinatra, you know, the budget demands of the music world start to shift. Man, imagine calling Frank Sinatra a budget singer. Well, no, I'm just saying. That's not what I meant. You're just offending everyone this episode. No. What I'm saying is if I'm a club that's going to hire people to come play music in 1950, I can hire one person like Frank Sinatra or I can hire like a big band. That's going to cost me way more. Depends. I'm sure there were plenty of big bands less expensive than Frank Sinatra after he hit his, you know, heyday. (laughs) Yeah, you might be right. We'll get to Sinatra someday. We're not there yet. I can't wait. I might pick him for the year of healing. That's a good heal. Yeah. I'm excited for the year of healing. Because you've never listened to an album of his, right? I have. One. Oh, probably won't be the one I want, so. It definitely won't. <laughs> it, sh- it shouldn't be, let me just say that. But anyway, that's the context that we're in when in 1953, Ellington Uptown comes out. The original record features the first five tracks that we're talking about today. Two more came out as bonus tracks on later reissues. And then the last five dances make up the Liberian Suite, and they came out as bonus tracks when the album was released as a CD. Although the Liberian Suite did exist independently as a record. Great. And then what happened to the other track? When did it show up? What do you mean? There's full five plus, you said two plus five plus five. Oh, That's 12. Sorry. There's 13 tracks. You're right. You're right. I like the sunrise. I like the sunrise is also part of the Liberian Suite. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the songs on the album were recorded between 1947 and 1952, making them some of the oldest songs we've talked about on the podcast with, once again, the exception of Rhapsody in Blue. Although even that was a recent recording of an older composed song. But the record features contributions from more than 30 musicians and members of his band, which is honestly totally necessary when you listen to this and you consider we've got piano, trumpets, trombones, violins, clarinets, saxophones, bass, drums, vocals, even a vibraphone. I mean, the works on this album. So it takes a big band for big band music. Shocker. I know. One of those musicians and collaborators, and we'd be remiss to leave his name out of a Duke Ellington episode, is Billy Strayhorn, a composer from Dayton, Ohio, who worked with Duke for more than 30 years and wrote hits like Take the A-Train and Chelsea Bridge. Ellington really loved working with Strayhorn. He said, Billy Strayhorn was my right arm, my left arm, all the eyes in the back of my head, my brain waves in his head, and his in mine. So they were really, really close as musicians and friends and collaborators. I found this album. This wasn't my first Duke Ellington album. The first one I listened to was a collaboration he did with John Coltrane in the 60s, which I also loved and almost thought about doing for this. But I wanted I wanted something older, you know, something Duke Ellington in his prime. All I know is that it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. But I found Ellington Uptown because it's pretty consistently ranked among the top Ellington albums to know. And it does kind of feel like a pretty good entry point into all of his work. Apparently, a lot of people consider the early 50s to be an off period for Duke, especially on account of a lot of personnel changes for his orchestra. But as far as I'm concerned, I I feel like they really crush it on this album. But some critics kind of see Ellington Uptown as this grasping at straws to stay alive and stay relevant in a rapidly changing musical landscape. Which, I mean, to a certain degree, yeah, it is. You're trying to maintain your career as a successful band but like i feel like they do it i don't want to say too much in the beginning because we'll talk about it in depth when we get to the songs but what really carries the record for me are its big tracks like take the a train especially duke's famous harlem suite people kind of consider the harlem suite to be one of duke ellington's all-time best achievements in his career 
But to wrap him up a little bit, after Ellington Uptown, post-1950s, his career would kind of experience this mid-50s resurgence with his performance at the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival. At that festival, there was an iconic saxophone solo that lasted for 27 choruses. Just a massive saxophone jam. It was so good it made international headlines. The show went on past midnight, and the festival organizers were literally begging them to stop playing. They were like, please... (laughs) We just want to go home. There's a recording of that concert that exists from the Newport Jazz Festival. It's mostly live, and it actually was the best-selling LP of Duke Ellington's career. I say mostly live because they had to simulate a lot of it the next day in a studio. Duke Ellington thought that the performance that they put on live was under-rehearsed and that they could do better. So he called them in the next day, and they basically did it again, which I think kind of illustrates that he's very particular about his work. You know, he has a standard that he maintains for himself and his band, and I think that's cool. In the 1960s, kind of like I alluded to, he entered this really collaborative period, working with other artists like Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, John Coltrane, and more. He continued to perform all around the world and make music, and he really showed no signs of slowing down. His final full concert came on March 20th, 1974, and he passed away on May 24th, 1974, due to complications from pneumonia and lung cancer. More than 12,000 people attended his funeral, including Ella Fitzgerald, who lamented that a genius had passed. Really, though? Honestly, yeah. I feel inclined to, I mean reinforce the opinions of that 1931 critic who said he was probably one of the top three composers. Not that I'm like super duper experienced, but just he helped music evolve really in this era that he worked in. He contributed so much to the great American songbook, right? All those jazz standards that exist mostly originate from Duke Ellington, or at least were covered by him in significant capacity. His discography is so vast and amorphous, it's kind of hard to pin down. Like I said, sometimes he and his band exist under a lot of different names, but what we do know is that he wrote and worked on more than 1,000 compositions, and his body of work is regarded as the largest collection of recorded music in jazz, in the whole genre, which is pretty unparalleled. Needless to say, Duke's an incredible inspiration to composers and musicians everywhere, across generations. Dozens of tributes and memorials to him and to his massive body of work still exist. In 1960, he got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he earned three honorary degrees from Yale, Milton College, and Berklee College of Music. And he's also a member of the Big Band and Jazz Hall of Fame, the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame, which I don't get, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and more. He earned the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1969 and the Legion of Honor in France, both of which are the highest civilian honors in their respective countries. In 1999, he earned a posthumous Pulitzer Prize for his contributions to music and culture, and in addition to winning 14 Grammys on 24 nominations from 1959 to 2000, three of those were posthumous, he earned a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1966. He also has a pretty remarkable seven singles and two albums in the Grammy Hall of Fame. And he's been on a commemorative quarter, on a stamp, and more. What an icon. Anyway, I don't have anything else as far as his backstory and history goes. There is a lot more to dig into. As thorough as it sounded, that was a pretty comparatively brief overview. (laughs) So if you're interested in learning more about Duke Ellington, I encourage you to look him up. There's so much to his story. But I did want to leave a lot of the fun trivia to the mixtaper this week for Factor Spin. Right. Wanted to give him some stuff to find. I know he's annoyed with you. Is he? Is it his birthday too? (laughs) No. 
He's just annoyed with you because you say you wanted to leave a lot of the fun trivia for him, but you definitely found some fun trivia that he's annoyed by. What can I say? Let's get him on out here. Let's figure out a few more things that may be true or maybe lies. Probably a little bit of both, but not always, I guess. I guess sometimes he does all of one or the other. It's true. Here he is. Here he is. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Hey, mixtaper. Welcome back to the show. I'll be honest, between you and me, now that... Is Connor not listening? Can you have him? Yeah, he went off to go get oh, some water. Okay. And to wipe the tears from his tear-stained cheek. Okay, good. Well, between you and me, I feel a little bit like a dastard this week. You should. Me and the gopher are throwing him a surprise party that he just doesn't know about yet. Well, if you're doing it this week, I mean, then you've already missed his birthday too. No, that's what's surprising about it. Everybody expects <laughs> a surprise party on their birthday. Oh, okay. So can I get in on that? No, you already admitted to forgetting. That was your fault. No, I didn't admit to forgetting. This was It's a shared birthday episode. Mm-mm. You, at the beginning, were like, oh, I guess it is. You definitely admitted to forgetting. You could have tried to play it off, but you didn't, so sorry. Oh, shoot. You're right. Well, you and I, we're just a couple of dastards this week. We're, we're co-evil. No, no, no. Well, the mixtaper doesn't share. But he is taking applications for additional apprentices. So if you're, you know, you if you're wanting to be more of a dastard, you can always sign up. The mixtaper doesn't share anything except knowledge. Yeah, that's true. I do share knowledge every week and some lies. I share lies. Yeah, it's true. You do lie quite a bit. I have a good question for you though. Before we get into this, a good question. Yeah, I just I would like you to tell me. Thinking back, what's been? I already know the answer to this question. All right, so oh, don't think you can pull one past me. So it's one I can get wrong. Yeah, what has been your favorite fact or spin of mine here in the last uh, handful of episodes? Handful, you say? Are we talking like nineties? Ah, uh, no, probably just eighties. Oh, okay. I was gonna say if it's from the nineties, it's definitely when you brought for Ray Stevens. Those were well thought out <laughs> and clever. I really enjoyed hearing you tell those. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I'd done better. In the 80s, there are some standouts for me in the 80s. Just the best one, cream of the crop. And there's a correct answer. You know, the one that when I told you the title, the headline, you were like, this is great. Well, it's been your favorite headline of mine as of late. I mean, I really did like the award thing you did with Harry Styles, the try both and the Twix. Oh, okay. That's a good one in the 80s. Uh, That was a good one, but not the best. No, no, admittedly not. I was very annoyed with the Robin Williams painting himself blue one on ZZ Top. Mm, That's true, you were. I think my favorite of your titles that we just really botched i i don't know if you've heard the episode we really just botched miranda lambert involved in a presidential mix-up because none of us could figure out what a mix-up was that's exactly been the best one and so i thought i would circle back to that one since you know it was was such a big favorite Oh no and so my first one for you this week is he had a presidential mix-up off the rails (laughs) now last time miranda lambert's mix-up We called it, what, a situation, an altercation. The real word you were looking for was lawsuit. (laughs) She was part of a presidential lawsuit. (laughs) We get a little more specificity on Duke Ellington's particular mix-up. Yeah, he broke a vase at the White House. Broke a vase. That one qualifies as a mix-up. That's not really a a situation. (laughs) What's he at the White House for? When is this happening? He's there with his dad. What are they doing? Finishing up working for the day. Does his dad work at the White House? His dad worked at the White House. 
did not know that. So if he's there with his dad, he is presumably a child. Correct. Okay. And so that puts us somewhere in the, I don't know, where? Like Harding Coolidge Hoover presidencies? Are we in the 20s? We are actually in Woodrow Wilson's presidency. It's the late 1910s. Okay. Good old Woody Wilson. Yeah. What's his dad do? His dad was a butler. And how does Duke get in there to take your child to work day? Back then, the White House actually allowed the people who worked there to bring their kids with them from time to time if like they had nowhere else for them to go. Okay. There was way less security back then. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Now, what's this vase? Is it a vase that's important? I mean, a lot of the furniture in the White House sometimes is old, vintage, owned by previous residents. Back then, it was just normal. It's vintage now. <laughs> <laughs> it's vintage now. Yeah. All the vases Duke didn't break now are pretty priceless. Yeah. Duke prevented that vase from becoming vintage. <laughs> I don't know. It was just uh, it was a base in the lobby. Right. What did he do? Bump a table? Yeah. Yeah. He, he went running to leave the White House and hit the table, knocked the vase over, broke it. Pretty classic stuff. Okay. Were there any consequences for this? Not that I'm aware of. Not that he wrote about in his memoirs, put it that way. All right. Okay. You have a good source for this. Well, supposedly true source. Well, yeah. Okay. This is a deep cut. Deep cut. I'm torn. I mean, I talked about how his dad was a concert pianist doing arias and operas. Mm -hmm. I can't tell how much of a living you'd make off of that and how much you'd need another job. Also... I mean, presidential butler sounds like a pretty full-time gig. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to say this is a fact. Locking in fact? Yes, I think I'm going to lock in fact. That's a very unique fact. I hope it's true. That's really cool. It is really cool. A really cool spin. Oh, poop. <laughs> but 90% of the fact was true. Okay, which 90% was true? Uh, his dad was a butler. And I Really, it's more 50%. Probably, I probably overestimated that percentage. His father was a butler in the White House, but it was in the 1920s under Warren G. Harding. But I backed it up. Ah. I backed it up to the 1910s in case you did the mental math to know that Duke Ellington wanted to have been a child under Warren G. Harding's presidency. He would have been like 21. <laughs> I'll be honest, that's clever, because that's kind of why I fed you the 20s president. Oh, to see if I would uh, just go along with it? Uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. I purposely backed it up to the 1910s. But it was under Warren G. Harding. Smart. He was a butler, and he never broke a vase. 21-year-old breaking a vase in the White House. A little different. Yeah. I feel like this is maybe, we just made maybe factor spin history. This is maybe the first time me changing the details of the fact to make it line up with what I'm telling you has actually worked. Usually you just don't ask, like you don't know the information or don't put the two and two together. Like this is the first time that like you asked a question that me dating the fact correctly actually helped rather than you just not having any clue. I think, yeah, <laughs> you might be right. Because I've done that with like Olympic facts before where like I've moved it to specific Olympic. You know, I've done all sorts of time manipulation stuff in my spins. Okay, so we're off to a bad start. Yeah, off to a bad start. But this presidential mix-up, once again, a little more of a mix-up than the last one. Yeah, I feel bad though you know, that you didn't get that one. So I think I'll give you another shot at it. He had a presidential mix-up. <laughs> Are we doing the law enforcement officer thing again? Is this just going to be the same fact over and over? I'm going to give you another shot at it. Get out. Okay, what's this mix-up? This one was with Teddy Roosevelt. When he was president? Yeah. What's this mix-up? I mean, if Teddy Roosevelt is a president when this mix-up occurs, Duke is like 10 years old. Uh-huh. Or less. The mix-up is he would watch him play baseball. Oh, sorry. Again, not so sure I call this one a mix-up. <laughs> 
This kind of sounds like he had an interaction with Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> play baseball, huh? Yeah. Duke play a lot of baseball? As a child. Yeah, well, yeah. Where is he playing that Teddy's watching? On 16th Street in Washington. Okay, like in D.C. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt's out and about for a stroll. On his horse, actually. Oh, out there for a ride, sees this baseball game, what, walks over and says, hey? No, he would just stand there and watch from the road. That's weird. And did the kids, like, know he was the president? Surely you'd know. Yep, and he when he was done taking when when he was done taking a break and done watching them, he would wave and the kids would wave back and he'd go on about his business. That's a little strange. Teddy Roosevelt liked baseball. I'm sure he was a big fan. America's pastime. That's kind of another trick question. I know. I know he did. <laughs> I'm gonna say that this fact is a fact. I think this presidential mix-up, wherein the president simply watched kids play baseball and Duke Ellington was there. Sure. Yeah, that seems true. Kids love baseball. Kids love to play baseball. Teddy Roosevelt loves to ride horses. Everything checks out. Locking in fact. I'm locking in fact. This is a true fact. Ooh, true for Teddy. Yes. All right. Here's the full quote. There were many open lots around Washington then, and we used to play baseball at an old tennis court on 16th Street. President Roosevelt would come up on his horse sometimes and stop and watch us play. When he got ready to go, he would wave and we would wave at him. That was Teddy Roosevelt, just him on his horse, nobody guarding him. That was from the Duke Ellington Reader, page 7. Wow. And you know what? Teddy never lived long enough to have Duke become a famous musician. He never knew that they crossed paths. That's sad. It is. Maybe he knew. He saw that kid playing baseball and was like, I might not live to see it, but that, that kid, kid, he's going to be a star. He's going <laughs> to razzle-dazzle with ragtime. That will be the Duke Ellington. No, Teddy passed away. He died in 1919. Yep. All right. Are we out of the presidential mix-ups? I mean, are we done? Well, you know, now we're one and one, so we have a tiebreaker. I think I'll go for one more. He had a presidential mix-up. You're taking this too far. <laughs> I mean, good on you to revisit one of our favorite facts <laughs> in recent memory, but uh, the definition of mix-up is just so vague. <laughs> the mixtape are really bringing the mix this week. What is this one? Uh, tell me the ooh, tell me the president. Let me see if I can guess at the mix-up. Okay. Truman. Harry Truman. Harry Truman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a pianist. His daughter was a singer. So he was a pianist. And, yeah. So what? Harry Truman, a big fan of Duke Ellington? Yeah. I believe it. And the mix-up happens while Harry Truman is president? Yeah. Early 50s. When this album's coming out? Yep. Okay, what's the mix-up? Uh, he sent him a personalized score. Duke sent Harry Truman a personalized score? Yeah. I have to warn you, though. The history nerd that I am, mm-hmm. I did definitely, very recently read like a 1400 page biography of harry truman nerd i know but he's a president i'm pretty familiar with sure what is the custom score that he receives from duke ellington i don't know okay what was personalized about it just written in his handwriting hang on i'm not done with the last question i don't know what it was called but i know it was performed at a white house correspondence dinner during the eisenhower administration Mm. yeah so I guess after Truman was president. It was performed at the White House Correspondence Dinner during the Eisenhower administration, the White House Festival of the Arts in June 1965, and a 1968 state dinner. So it's been performed three times by the White House. Don't know what it's called, though. Oh, that's interesting and really cool. He also gave the president original scores from uh, parts of the Harlem Suite and a part of Take the A Train that he signed. Ooh, 
I am positive that Truman is exactly, he would have loved that. What's the situation like? Were they in touch at all? Mm -hmm. He invited him to the White House to compare musical notes. Interesting. I like this. Truman is the is one of the most music nerd presidents. Yeah. He sounded pretty skeptical at the beginning, but it sounds like you're leaning fact now. Oh, no. I think this is a spin. Oh. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I hate to burst your bubble. I don't think this is true. Awkward. Would you believe me if... Are you locking in the spin? Half the time I have you lock it in, half the time I don't. Yeah. Really bad about the whole lock-in. So would you believe me if I said, you know, as the dastard I am and super villain that I am, I keep tabs on you and knew you had read that book and thus knew you would think you were had extensive knowledge on the life of Harry Truman and would fall for such a fact. I mean, you can keep tabs on me all you want, which is, we'll have to talk about that later. I just think, no, I think this is a spin. Mm, well, this is a fact. Really? Darn. Wow. You can find information on that uh, at the Harry S. Truman Library website. Look at that. Well, I knew Truman was a big music guy, and that's what I thought you were leaning into. I thought that you would maybe know Truman was a music guy. And I knew that you would know that I would know. And this album was from the 50s? Yeah, this this happened on September 29th, 1950. That was good. We kind of double-blind crossed each other there. Yeah. I feel like I felt that I would know it, you thought that I would know it, <laughs> and then I thought you'd know that I would know it, and you thought that... What, what a... a- what a hot mess. What a twist. Oh, it's so sad that I missed that one. Can I get a fourth try? Yeah, you know what? I, you, I can give you one more try. Would you like one more try? Okay. Only because you asked for it. So uh, he had a presidential mix-up. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you can just tell. Would you like to know the president again? That was a fun game. Yeah, this one is the most mix-up-y of mix-up presidents, Nixon. Mm. <laughs> a lot of potential for mix-ups. Nixon got mixed up in a lot. <laughs> yeah. What is his mix-up with Richard Nixon? What's Duke Gate? <laughs> uh, Nixon sang for him. Oh, my gosh. Richard Nixon sang for Duke Ellington? That's what I'm telling you. No wonder the man died in 1974. <laughs> Get me out of here. Why? Because it was his birthday. It's your birthday, too. How about no, that? No, it's not. Oh, it's not, your it's birthday, not my birthday. Oh. It's not mine or Connor's. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so that was right around this time, then. What birthday was this? It was his 70th birthday. Okay. And did he sing... Happy birthday? He sure did. Where is this happening? At his 70th birthday party that Richard Nixon held for him when he gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom that you mentioned. I did mention that. Yep. He gave him that award on his 70th birthday at his 70th birthday party held at the White House. Okay. Um, Duke seems like too nice of a guy to have commented on the quality of Nixon's singing. But what if it's happy birthday, he wasn't like singled out singing to him, right? This was like the whole whole party singing happy birthday? No. No, just Richard Nixon. How awkward. Yeah, he played the piano for him too. Imagine, what? Played the piano for Duke Ellington? Uh-huh. Oh. And in 1969, so this is like, let's see. The 70th birthday. You doing the math? You checking? <laughs> no, that checks out. The math's fine. Frankly, I don't know what else to ask. Whatever you want to ask. You, you made the comment that he wanted to comment on his ability, but he did. You'd like to know what that is. Oh, he did. Okay. I actually would, because... Richard Nixon doesn't strike me as a good singer. Both Duke Ellington and other guests in attendance afterwards acknowledged Nixon's music ability, saying, he's a good musician. I didn't know that. He's something else. Something else he is not is a crook. <laughs> How's this piano playing? What song did he play? Uh, happy Birthday. Oh. He sat down at the piano, played Happy Birthday, and sang Happy Birthday. Well, good on him. Tough. This is hard. What are the odds that Duke Ellington had three factual presidential mix-ups? That's what you have to decide. I know. I think I'm going to decide that this is a fact. Going with fact. Three presidential mix-ups. Well, 
No, I'm deciding that this is a fact. Oh. So that means it's true now. Oh, oh, I see. Regardless of whether it was before, I've decided that this is a fact. I like the attempt. What is your answer? Oh, no, my, my answer is fact. Okay, so you're locking in fact. Three true presidential mix-ups. Yeah, and I think... I mean, that's a scary thought, but that's exactly why I think it's true. Sure. Is because you would know that three would be pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm a little disappointed in you. Are you? I mean, I can't believe you let me get away with just claiming that Nixon sang happy birthday for him. <laughs> I can't believe that wasn't suspicious to you right away. I mean, it is a little bit. It's the birthday episode for him. Yeah, yeah you're slipping. Because uh, this is a true fact. <laughs> I was going to say, you haven't said it's not true yet. I decided it. Yeah, this is a true fact. Wow. So, yeah, it was for Ellington's birthday dinner in 1969. It, it featured Coke Wheel of Seafood Deptune and Roast Sirloin of Beast Bordelais uh, served in the state dining room. Three. After dinner, the guests moved to the East Room, where Nixon presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the first of his administration, to Ellington with his family in attendance. After the ceremony, Nixon declared that he had not yet played piano in the White House and asked those present to join him as he played Happy Birthday for Duke Ellington with the president on piano. Wow. Look at that. Nixon's mixing. Nixon's mixing. We got a mix-up. His second mix-up, even though we didn't call it one. His second true mix-up. Nixon's mixing. Truman's true. Teddy already. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good one for that. Uh, And then Woodrow Wilson deserves to be the spin. (laughs) But even that was partially true. You learned his father was a butler for Warren G. Harding. Yeah, I did. So it could have been a true mix-up had I just left it at that. That was fun. The history nerd in me is really enjoying this episode. I'm, I'm glad. This is a good one. <laughs> ah, presidential mix-ups. Going forward, any encounters our artists have with presidents will be referred to as mix-ups. That is a new thing. I mean, you've done five mix-ups in the last 12. <laughs> Put that in the Spin It Hall of Fame right up there with Alien Encounters and Rybipson the Ghost. <laughs> Great. Well, I love it. And we're back to 50-50. We did. 50-50. That is our first 50-50 in the 90s. Look at that. And actually, our first 50-50 since the Eric Church episode. Impressive. But uh, with that, I must leave to go I gotta take the blimp down to Nashville and collect my spy equipment before you find it. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, yeah. All right, well, there goes the mixtaper. Hello again, Connor. I was worried you were going to think that last one was a spin. Yeah, I know you were. The birthday thing was an incredible coincidence. Yeah. And I even thought about that at first when he said it. But anyway, let's talk about the album cover of Ellington Uptown. This is an instance where, yes, it came out before the album era, but also it does have an album cover, but also the album cover is just him at a piano. It's very blue, and he's got a yellow circle around his face. Yeah. It it feels very early 50s. I agree. I also don't know why they went with the blue and yellow color scheme. It's kind of different. It pops, though. I will give it that. I kind of like it. I kind of do, too. I, I guess there's nothing really to dislike. But yeah, that's the album cover. And we jump into the original record for the first five tracks, beginning with Skin Deep. Great intro. Great intro, right? Big sweeping opening. You just gotta love that jazzy, right off the bat sound. And I think there's a great contrast between the melodic instruments that really drive the melody, but then all these massive brass instruments that come in to emphasize and underscore it, especially like you can hear right on this opening. It kind of reminds me of the Michael Buble episode we did. Whatever song he started on that sounded very dramatic and and such, like this. Uh, Are you talking about Cry Me a River? Cry Me a River, that's the one. Mm -hmm. How dare you not remember it? 
I didn't forget it. I remembered it as soon as you That kind of lackadaisical laissez-faire attitude towards my suggestions is what got you in trouble this year to begin with. It's not lackadaisical. I like I like your suggestions. I'll let it slide for now. Okay. Just you're making the year of healing a hard sell. It's already we're already about to enter it. Not there yet. It's true, but it approaches. Don't count your heels before, or don't don't count your don't don't just don't just don't. <laughs> Got it. I also love in Skin Deep all the ways that he starts playing with time signature and tempo that makes the song really engaging because you never know exactly where it's about to go next. Yep. But it's never really a surprise. It never feels unexpected or jarring. It's just very smooth and like free flowing, which I like. The song's real key feature well uh several key features the first time this happens is at about a minute 30 we get our very first drum solo yeah and then you get another longer one that like the three and a half minute mark yeah i mean it starts at at a minute 30 but it pretty much persists intermittently for the rest of the like seven minute song (laughs) i think skin deep is probably the drummiest song we've done i mean can you think of anything that rivals it because i couldn't i racked my brain and i thought this probably takes the cake yeah well you've already shown that you apparently can't remember things to this episode when it comes to the previous songs that we've done cry me a river <laughs> this wound only goes skin deep it's okay oh good <laughs> yeah but no this is probably the this is you're probably correct yeah and it's fascinating to me too because the drums in a in a jazz setting and in an era like this they had such a different style and function than they do most of the time nowadays big fan of like the cowbell sound at like the somewhere in the four minute mark era you can you gotta have more cowbell there's like a little to tink to tink to tink to tink it sounds like it's on a cowbell yeah there is a segment where we get into a little more of a swing kind of section and i really enjoyed that one as well don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing Uh uh-huh it's always interesting to talk about instrumental tracks because i always am curious whether we're like conveying it properly to you the audience we're probably not i don't even on the ones with words i don't know if we convey it properly sure we do i would say as is the case for most instrumentals probably the best way you're going to get a sense of it is just to go listen to it yourself this is an album i can highly recommend you go listen to in addition to hearing us talk about it because it's just there's so many like intangible little things about it that we couldn't properly express to you but i love it skin deep great opening track the ending is once again mostly drums for a long time it's thunderous and we get a really really satisfying build to a big finish I think Skin Deep is pretty solid. And honestly, so most of my impressions of Duke Ellington prior to this album were as an instrumentalist, right? Uh, His collaboration with John Coltrane that I listened to, he mostly plays the piano. And so I'm used to Duke Ellington, the piano guy. And to hear this fully orchestrated, really like, just to experience Duke Ellington, the composition guy, in his full songwriting potential, what an introduction. (laughs) Yeah. Now I'm curious to know what you thought of track two. Track to the mooch. Yeah, we won't get that drummy ever again. (laughs) Skin Deep is the drum's biggest moment. The mooch has this mysterious minor tone to it and some really tight parallel harmonies that I absolutely loved. The title being the mooch, sometimes spelled without the E at the end, like you would kind of recognize the word mooch nowadays, is all about someone who's borrowing things for free, right? A freeloader. They take things they don't ever give back or return. Ellington wrote the song and he said that it referred to a certain lazy gait peculiar to some of the folk of Harlem. So this is the first time on the album where we kind of get a sense of this 
But he's writing these songs based on what he's seeing and experiencing in the world around him. It's not the last time he's going to do that. But so much of like the energy of this album is just derived from his observations of day-to-day life in Harlem, which I love. The other thing about the Mooch that I love, and I, I'm pretty sure you love too, is the trumpet. Oh, you know I did. You're the trumpet guy. I'm just the instrumental guy. Well, then I guess this is a good record for you. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it sucked. I don't know. Yeah, I really. I just in general, I like the clarinet. I like all the features. The instruments get on this album as a whole everybody has their own time to shine i feels like he doesn't really leave anyone out to dry uh, i didn't hear any uh harmonica no you didn't the dry harmonica i don't think that's because you missed it it's just not there but the trumpet yeah the trumpet in this song kind of functions like the drums in the last song it's really what they lean on it's a muted trumpet yes the muted trumpet it's so expressive just like so many of these instruments but honestly the wah was yeah the was the muted trumpet might as well just be a human voice singing for as dynamic as it is and as like intimate as you can get with it it's like if a charlie brown adult tried to sing tried to sing it is <laughs> it makes a lot of sense i'm never gonna be able to look at that song the same way me either but i think we are conveying it perfectly to hear you say that i really think we did hit that nail on the head <laughs> It's also a lot slower than Skin Deep and much heavier on the woodwinds than the brass. So it's a nice second track for this record. We kind of get a sense of the wider scope of what he's writing and, and creating. Yep. But I'll be honest, as much as I love Skin Deep and The Mooch, both, I think they're my least favorite two tracks out of the original five. Really? Uh-huh, I do, which is saying something. And that's that's not a slight on them. Yeah, so that means you really like the next one, Take the A-Train. Oh my gosh, did I ever. Take the A-Train is one of Duke Ellington's most popular tracks, kind of a signature song, and that's due in part to covers from legends like Ella Fitzgerald. I feel like she's maybe now our most talked about person that we haven't done at this point. You might be right. The vocals on this version, though, are provided by Betty Roche. What'd you think? It's the first song with words. First one with uh, lyrics. Mm-hmm. And also interesting, it's the first song to prominently feature the piano on the record. Again, knowing Duke as the piano guy, I was surprised it took three tracks to get into it. I'm not as surprised. No? But I think I'm more familiar. I would bet that's also the case, yes. This song, though, was not composed by Duke Ellington. This one was written by his little protege that we mentioned. Ah! Yeah, Billy Strayhorn. I love that piano, though. I love the way it just tumbles all over the place. It's very satisfying, and I think it not only shows off Strayhorn's skill as a composer, but as an instrumentalist for what I think is the first time. He can really play the piano. Tickle the ivories, as they say. What did you think about the scat section of the song? I mean, we'll talk about the lyrics in a minute. Is this our first scat section on the podcast? Absolutely not. Oh, yo, remember all those Michael B. Oh, Blaze oh, songs? No. You son of a gun. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Unbelievable. Scrub my infraction from the record. <laughs> I'll be honest. I was sending a message right then. So I was just taking the last thing I heard you say and asking a question about it and immediately regretted it. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, good. I'm just gonna let's just call it even. You know what? We're 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 on level playing ground now. I don't know about even, but it's closer. Okay, sure. But what the scat section? Yes, is it good? Is it bad? I quite enjoyed it. I do too. I think it's a good contrast. Like in in the mooch, right? I said, wow, that trumpet is so expressive. It almost sounds like a voice. And in this song, I get to say that voice. You're like, well, that voice is like a trumpet. It's so good. It sure sounds like an instrument. Yeah, exactly. 
I think it's cool. The lyrics mostly center around the New York City subway system, which was relatively new at the time, and finding one's way to Harlem. So I guess the song is also very functional, because if you did get lost, you could just start singing it, and then you'd know, oh, take the A train. Like, you get it. Yeah. I really don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say this is one of the most enduring and well-loved songs to emerge from this era of music, and also probably just from the genre of jazz overall. Take the A Train is a song that I've heard, I think, or at least heard of in other contexts. Gotcha. It's kind of outlived this record, which I love. Now, you mentioned that this song could help you find your way to Harlem. What if I wanted to be parallel to Harlem? Uh, yeah, then then a tone parallel to Harlem might be the one for you. It's also known as the Harlem Suite. It's track four on this record, and it's the that's the record flip track, right? On side one, you get to listen to Skin Deep, The Mooch, and take the A train. Then you got to stand up, flip the record over. Then you get into a tone parallel to Harlem, which is excellent. It's pretty widely regarded by critics and Duke Ellington himself as one of his best works, hands down. He played it live during a lot of concerts. Critics have even said... And I love this quote. They've said it's every bit as much a miniature masterpiece as is Rhapsody in Blue. Wow. Uh-huh. So this is like his best rap. Yeah, it is. It is a pretty sweet, sweet. The Spin It Award for Parallel to Rap. Parallel to Rap. He's Parallel to Rap. I kind of want to give him the Sweet Sweet Award. The Sweet Sweet Award? I kind of like that too. Okay, maybe it's maybe we combine them and he just gets the... It's the Sweet Rap Award. <laughs> S-U-I-T-E-R-H-A-P. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sure, why not? What have we done? I don't know. Too much. We've done too much. So, A Tone Parallel to Harlem was actually a commissioned piece. It was supposed to be part of an orchestral suite inspired by New York City, with different composers contributing bits that referred to different boroughs or different aspects of the city. I don't think the rest of the project ever came to fruition, but this part obviously did. And buckle up. I mean, we're in for a long 13 minutes and 47 seconds, but it is so worth it. It is. A, it's a long one. It is. Did it feel long? Every time I'm listening to it, I get sucked into it, and it doesn't feel like time passes at a normal rate. But maybe that's just me. I feel like we should talk more about this one because of how long the song is, but I don't have anything else to say, really. Oh, I have more to say. Don't worry. Oh. I have a lot to say about this song. Are you kidding? It's a, It's one of his best songs, and I think it's my favorite on the record. Okay. Duke Ellington wrote about the song and all the different ways it's meant to come across. So, like, there are several musical movements that you can pick out throughout the song right each one is supposed to kind of represent a different scene from the streets of harlem and he kind of enumerated those in how he would introduce the song or how he wrote about it he said we would now like to take you on a tour of this place called harlem it's sunday morning he said we're strolling from 110th street up 7th avenue heading north through the spanish and west indian neighborhood towards 125th street business area you may hear a parade go by or a funeral or you may recognize the passage of those who are making civil rights demands sometimes he was known to enumerate more than 20 different passages it's 20 different distinct parts within the song. So it's like scene by scene by scene of day-to-day -day life in Harlem. I love it. The opening trumpet sound is meant to sound like the word Harlem. Mm. You'll hear that two-note motif repeated a lot throughout the song, especially when you're listening for it. And you could hear the song like, go Harlem all the time once you know it's there. So it starts kind of... I mean, in my head, 
I guess this is me doing your Rhapsody in Blue thing, right? <laughs> and going <laughs> through all the things that happen as I listen to the song, like how I envision it. Okay, this is this is your gopher fever dream. Maybe, but it's not in any way quite like that. In my head, at the very beginning, with that Harlem part, we're like zoomed out up above the city, right? And then as we get this big build up to the whole band joining in, it feels like we're just like zooming in down to street level. The scope of the song changes a lot, which is so cool. It feels like we're watching a movie scene, you know? Just the intro and then the pan in. It's nice. And this song is the first time the strings get a moment to stand out. Again, a record that's been really heavy on brass and wind so far. So strings are a welcome change. And the song ends with one more series of very celebratory Harlems that I think really tie the entire suite together into a really awesome conclusion. I love the Harlem suite. I don't know if I can rightfully put a 13 minute 47 second song on the playlist but boy it's good i mean go for it nothing's stopping you but yourself you mean go for it (laughs) up next though let's talk about track five the last song on the original album perdido so you also like this one better than skin deep and the mooch this one's close this one's close but i think i do mostly what i like is that hook because after i listened to the harlem song and heard it going harlem with all the trumpets all i could hear in this song on the chorus was perdido 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 Perdido." (laughs) see see and that's what got this one so stuck in my head oh man yeah and that's why i put it above skin deep in the mooch while i love both of them i just can't shake the jaunty little perdido now if you went back to those two could you find a way to insert their song title into it and maybe you'd like them better again maybe i don't know it'll be a thing we have to try i do there's another one that i love the trumpet on mm-hmm. perdido was composed by juan tizol it's about perdido street in new orleans and it's another song that our most talked about never episoded friend ella fitzgerald included in her string of ellington works and it's also been covered by artists like art tatum and of course the one and only quincy jones remember him yeah it's come up several times. He has. I'll never forget now. Yeah. <laughs> Perdido is another song that exceeds eight minutes. But like I said, it's so lighthearted and relaxed. A lot more than A-Train and Mooch and Harlem. Perdido is just a jaunty little, little bit. This song, in general, just also feels very cohesive throughout. There's much less variation from section to section, like we've had in basically every other song so far. Not that it's bad in either case, it's just different. And I think it's cool to see an eight-minute song with a lot of sectional variation. I like some variation in my sectionals. Yeah, exactly. See? But yeah, Perdido has another characteristic big finish. Perdido, Perdido. Perdido, Perdido. And (laughs) that's the normal album as it was initially released. That's the official LP version of Ellie uptown yeah but that lp was before my time the next two tracks before my time and later are both part of what's called the controversial suite but i find that very funny before my time and later they're opposites yeah yeah i know it's weird maybe that's why the suite's so controversial i i tried to find out why it's called that couldn't so fair enough these two only came out on a hi-fi version of the album. Maybe that's why it's controversial. Maybe. They were recorded on December 11th, 1951. And uh, before my time, again, some really intense woodwind work on that track. So if you like clarinets and woodwinds, before my time might exactly be what you want. Who likes that? Who likes that? I mean, when you could have another track filled with, you know, brass, why would you settle for woodwinds? Uh, Are you going to start a war between woodwind and brass lovers in the audience? Uh, No, I'm just taking my side in the ever-present war going on between woodwinds and brass oh you weren't in band 
You don't know. I don't. The, the many great battles fought. Battles fought, you say? Yeah, battles fought, wars waged, lives lost. Lives lost? <laughs> well, it sounds like all that was before my time. <laughs> this is another song where there are a lot of interesting time signature and rhythmic decisions, where a lot of the background rhythm parts will just stop and let the melodic instruments do their thing. And it kind of jolted me out of the flow of the song. Really? Not in a bad way, but yeah, it did. Oh, okay. It sounded like a bad thing. Well... It wasn't, I don't think. Fair enough. I feel like the trombone gets a good feature on this one. It's like, going on. Yeah, that is how trombones usually go. It speeds up really nicely, too. Great ebb and flow to the tempo throughout the song. And it's just seamless. I love it. I think Before My Time probably contains some of the most impressive instrumentals that you'll hear. In terms of speed, I don't think there's anything comparable on this entire record. (laughs) My gosh. The amount of talent and practice that have to go into some of these parts is just unimaginable. Especially as you get deeper into the song. Mm Mm-hmm. It gets frantic. It's so well done. Later is also really cool. It starts with the tick of the clock and these really dissonant notes. Like time is stressing you out, like you're really under the gun. There's this tension and this immediacy to it, which contrasts nicely with some of the laziness or the lackadaisical style from earlier songs like Perdido or Harlem. But we do break out of that within a minute or so. I think it's a musical relief just to hear something new in the song. Yeah. Even though there's still little bits of dissonance and weird intervals kind of scattered throughout, it's just good to move away from that into the actual song. I agree. It's also the shortest song we've talked about so far at 4 minutes and 13 seconds, but it also kind of works in tandem with For My Time. So I kind of consider it just like one part of a longer 10 minute, 20 second. Yeah, well, you know, it was like this was before my time and this is later and we're skipping over the current time. The current time isn't in there. Yeah, I think it's just interesting to see. I mean, we talked about how Duke writes all these nice little jukebox hits, right? The, the jukebox singles. Yep. And this feels kind of closer to that. So it's cool to see how he operates without as many movements or so much time to mix things up and build into the song. I feel like this one's the drums get a little bit more. I know you said we never really get as drummy as Skin Deep again. (laughs) And we don't. But this one, the drums are more present, less uh, drowned out. Interesting. Probably than most of the rest of the tracks, aside from Skin Deep. Especially uh, in the more slower sections where it's just one or two instruments, you can really hear that drum kind of driving along with the bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. True. The last six tracks on the album that we're going to talk about today, I Like the Sunrise and then those five dances, are part of what's called the Liberian Suite, which I learned a lot about. It came out as an EP back in the day, its own little contained release, and they were turned into bonus tracks when the record made the jump to CD and therefore got a reissue. These were recorded on Christmas Eve in 1947, which makes them the oldest songs on the record by the matter of a few years. Huh. Mm-hmm. The Liberian Suite itself was actually another commission piece. The government of Liberia requested that Duke make these in honor of its 100th anniversary. It was founded by freed American slaves who declared the nation's independence in 1847. So that's where the Liberian Suite comes from. And that's the context in which Duke wrote, I like the sunrise in these dances, or at least compiled them. I like the sunrise is the one that's up first on this record. And it's the second song on the album with vocals. 
I mean, this collection of songs. They come from Al Hibbler, a vocalist who eventually had a bit of a solo career himself and was pretty influential in inspiring a crossover between R&B into kind of the popular sphere of music. He worked with Duke Ellington for eight years, and he's also featured on a lot of his other works. So if you like his voice, you can find more of it on other Ellington works. Nice. I think it is nice. I like I like the sunrise. I don't mind the vocal, but I also think the instruments underneath the vocal hold their own pretty well, especially with the way they end all their phrases on the unexpected chords. Oh, I just like it. It's a very peaceful and hopeful song. It's just generally a song I enjoy. I do like the vocals. I know, right? They're so full, so rich. I like the vocals. <laughs> I think uh, maybe we should just talk about the last five dances as a group. I agree. I didn't ever have too much to say individually about all of them. Just each one kind of got a couple quick bullet points for me. Yeah. And obviously, as part of one EP, I feel like they're meant to be taken together. What do you think of the dances? They're interesting. Mm -hmm. Each of them's a lot shorter. Yeah, well, they just kind of felt much how you had like the Harlem Suite, right? That was like this collection of movements. Mm -hmm. This almost felt like it was one long, like 16 minute song, you know? Yes, very much so. But it it feels like one 16 minute song that goes through those five distinct movements. So each movement gets a little bit more emphasis. Yeah. And it's another part where I think a lot of the instruments get their own day in the sun. More muted trumpets happen on dance number one and also on dance number five. Muted trumpets feature prominently. The violin and the strings get their moments on dance number three. Dance number two brings xylophones into the mix and some really innovative or at least unique percussion. It's pretty nice. Yep. And dance number four, I think, is probably my favorite of the dances. Oh, I agree. Oh, okay. Look at that. We had the same favorite dance. There's just, it's various rhythms on various different instruments. It's surprising and intriguing and it really keeps you engaged. And it's got more big drum moments. Again, though, it wasn't initially paired with Skin Deep, so not always been compared to that. But I can't help but think of Skin Deep every time I hear the drums when I listen to all of these songs. Uh-huh. But that's the Liberian Suite. Very cool. I think I like it a lot better after I learned the history of it and the Liberian Commission. Like, There's a nice intentionality and a history to these songs that I think makes them really cool, really impactful. Yeah, that is cool. I like it. Well, shall we get into Final Spin? I guess we shall. I guess we shall. I don't think it's fair to give this record a lyric score. Only two of these songs have lyrics, and obviously the lyrics are pretty clearly very secondary to the music anyway. So I didn't give it a lyric score. And in instances like that, what I do is I take the weight of the lyric score and distribute it out to the other categories. So music's weighted a little higher. Evenly? Evenly, yeah. Oh, okay. Since lyrics are worth 30% of the score, the other three categories each get an extra 10% to their weight. Music on this album, this album is all music, right? (laughs) Incredible. Well, hang on. There's some instruments in there. (laughs) Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I get it. And I would argue there's a little vibe. I would argue that too. (laughs) And we'll talk about that in a bit. This thing's all music. Come on. What's wrong with you? I'm not saying... What a nothing statement that was. Every album we do is all music. It's a music. It's an album. That's what it is. (laughs) No, I know. I know. I just mean the man's a composer through and through. His music isn't like lacking. Audience out there? I don't know if you know this, but this album performed by a uh, artist. Okay. In case you didn't know that. Laugh your laugh. Do your thing. This podcast created by podcasters. All right. <laughs> I'm just saying Duke knows what he's doing. 
I think he puts every tool in his toolbox to work here to make the music for this album. I'm giving it a 91. Really enjoyable. Lots of movements. Nothing ever feels the same as anything before it. It's pretty great. Lyrics are getting a no score. N.A. on that. Instruments and production. I'm kind of surprised. You know how good this all still sounds, being from the late 40s, early 50s. Obviously, there are some restrictions on recording back then. I have a question. What's that? If you had an acapella album that was just them doing instrumental stuff and the lyrics, would you have two N.A.'s? Would it just be music and vibe? I've never thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I think it would. <laughs> or their voices maybe would count as instruments. No, no, no. I don't think they would. I think I, I think it's uh, music and vibe only. No instruments. Maybe. I'm on my, I'm now have a new mission for what to find. <laughs> Good luck. But anyway, despite some of the recording limitations at the time or how, I mean, I guess aged the record is at this point going on 70 years old, past 70 years, going on more than that. Anyway. I think it still holds up remarkably well. Almost as old as episodes we have. Yeah, it really, again, rivaled only by Hank Williams. And some of the songs are even older than some of the songs we talked about that he recorded. So it's definitely back there. And, of course, George Gershwin and the best rap, Rhapsody in Blue. (laughs) I think the instrumentalists are phenomenal. They're so well rehearsed. Everybody plays their part well, phenomenally well. 88 instruments of production. The overall vibe, maybe a little low, I think, but... 84 is just that's what felt right when I finished listening to the album. It's a long album, mostly again because it's like three different things smushed together onto one offering, mm-hmm. at least on Spotify. And I don't mind its length so much. Yeah, I don't mind it as well either. Yeah, 84 for vibe. Obviously, the Duke gets a composer bonus. Duke gets his extra bonus point, and that gives the album a final score of 89.3. Nice. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That puts it at number 111 on my rankings list. Pretty good. Right? I have an idea for my playlist pick, but I want you to go first, so do your thing. Okay. My top three in album order, Skin Deep. Rock on. The Mooch. Moochie. Interesting. Take the A-Train. That's three from the first three. (laughs) And Perdido, as the Conorable mentioned. Wow. Passing over Harlem. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's why I was shocked when you said that you liked it better than the first two. Wow. Can I ask why? Uh, Because I'm the people's champion. (laughs) Okay. Again, a lot of people think it's his best work. Maybe not as many people as you'd like. The people have spoken. (laughs) I'm not the champion of those people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm shocked. Yeah. I thought you'd love Harlem, being the Rhapsody in Blue of the album. I liked it. Just saying, like the other ones more. Just didn't even make your top four. It's the one song from the original album that you snubbed. It would have been next if I got to pick another one. (laughs) It would have been been next. (laughs) Out of the five, it would have been my fifth. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Just been on the album as a whole, it would have been next. Okay. (laughs) Like if I'd taken an additional one, that one would have come in. All right. Uh, But yeah, I was I was a bigger fan of the original album than all the additional stuff. Oh, I agree. Same. But the other stuff was pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Big fan of instrumental songs, as I think everyone is aware, unless this is your first episode ever, in which case, surprise. Welcome. <laughs> as for my score, mm-hmm. this one's gonna get nine missed birthdays out of ten. Nine. Wow. I'm sorry. Yep. It's not a missed birthday. It is Duke Ellington's birthday episode in yours, too. Last week was my birthday episode and you missed it. No, this is your birthday episode. It's, I, it's a wise soul once told me it's not a surprise if you see it coming. And that's why I put your birthday episode this week. Can't steal the mixtapers logic. That's not where I heard it. I already know he's throwing me a birthday party. No, he's I'm not. Pretty, you just called the mixtaper a wise man. <laughs> 
Hey, it's true. <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, get out of your mixtaper. Go finish making my birthday cake. Better not be pumpkin spice flavored. You know it will be. Nine, though. Nine! I had high hopes for this album for you. I really did. And I just wasn't... I'm never sure. Mm-hmm. You can just never be too sure. Sure? No, never too sure. Well, why do you think this is going in my nines? It's a hard call. <laughs> Do you think it goes above the most important one? I think. Do you think it goes above or below Doctor Demento? <laughs> it better go above Doctor Demento. Uh, he's at the bottom of your nines. I think you're gonna put this one above Apocalypse Whenever and Bad Sons. I don't think this is gonna edge out Phantom for you, but I do think it's gonna edge out Indie Pop. Wow, you think I really liked this one? Or, I mean, alternate idea. I think you didn't like Apocalypse Whenever that much. This. Going right above Redheaded Stranger. Oh, that is a lot lower than I thought. Okay. So what about Redheaded Strangers is this better than? And what about Hotel California is this worse than? Uh, I think it is the additional songs weighing it down just a teeny bit. Like I said, they were good. They just mm-hmm. they do weigh it down a little bit. I think if it was just that first collection of five, this would have been up in that Apocalypse Whenever territory. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. When I listened to this album on the albums of the month, I loved it. I went and sought it out and bought the physical record of the first five songs. It's a repressing from 1955. That's awesome. It is awesome. It came, I listened to it, I love it. It's one of my favorite records I have now. And now you can just put it on and go perdido, perdido, perdido. But it's a record. <laughs> yeah, I can. And it's great. And it's just the first five songs. So I definitely agree that's the strongest five. And yeah, yeah the rest does maybe anchor it a little too much. Yeah. A little extra fluff on there. But solid placement. As for the playlist pick, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go the mooch. You're taking the mooch. Interesting. Which is a tough one because, I don't know, what are you thinking? Well, because now all you can think about is Perdido. See? <laughs> I, it really is. I, I'd love to have Perdido on the playlist. So every time it comes on, I'm like, Perdido, Perdido. But how can you not take take the A train? I, I have to take take the A train. It's That's my pick. Yeah. I have that locked in regardless of what, what else you would have picked. That was what I was going to take. Because, again, as much as I love Harlem, I don't think it fits the playlist. You're right. And I don't think the mooch does either. So I'm going to go with Perdido. I'm going <laughs> to change it. All right. Mainly just because the mooch is a very, like you said, it's a, in a minor. It's, it's really going to, like, imagine, like, the mooch coming on after Hotel California. It's just going to kill the vibe. Uh, but Perdido comes on. It can keep the vibe alive. It sure can. It's got that up-tempo. So even though I think I like the mooch more, I'm going to pick Perdido for the playlist. Understandable and respectable. Man, brings us to the end of another Findies episode. It really does. I liked this episode a lot. I mean, top to bottom, history facts, jazz music. I just feel like I feel like we were on all cylinders today. So kudos to you and to me. That's the way a birthday episode should be. You know, happy birthday, Duke Ellington. (laughs) (laughs) And to you listening to this, if you want more Spin It content, go follow us on socials. We're on Twitter at Spin It Pod, on Instagram at Spin It Pod Official, and we have a website, www.spinitpod.com, where you can find all of our bonus content, rankings in full, all our playlists, all our everything. Everything. Our store. Past episodes future episodes episodes that are before my time and episodes that are coming later will all be on the website and if you want to see whose birthday we talk about next just stay tuned you know it won't be mine and i vow it won't be james's it's rare that we miss a birthday i don't think we've missed one yet this was your birthday episode oh it wasn't
It was. It was. It was. This was part of it. That was part of it. It's this is like my consolation episode. It's like, oh, we forgot about you. It's like the kid. It's like when like you know you don't order enough party favors for the number of kids to show up, so you just go like rifle through the junk drawer to figure out what you can give this poor kid. Oh yeah. Who got there maybe ten minutes later than all the other kids, and you're like, oh, this is your bottle opener, little kid. Happy birthday. Anyway, we're getting into some outro banner now, so I think we need to quickly wrap it up and just say, uh, keep spinning. That's right. Have a great week and keep spinning. Perdido, perdido, perdido. Hey, put the mixtaper back on. I have some questions. Perdido, perdido, perdido. <laughs> no, hey, mixtaper, listen to me. Yeah. Listen to me good. Yeah. I need to know why you're keeping tabs on me. Are you spying on me? Uh, I keep I keep tabs on all my enemies. Enemies? I'm your enemy? In fact, there's been. Yeah, I just don't spy on me. I'd appreciate if you didn't. I definitely am not currently hovering outside your apartment in a blimp waiting for you to go to sleep so I can send the gopher in to collect my spy equipment. How many fingers am I holding up? None. Oh, he's good. Yeah!